listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. And I'm Kevin McLenathan. Break out the hooded robes and spear-wielding teddy bears, Wade. It's time for us to review A Star War. You know, Kevin, I've got a okay feeling about this. Oh, thank the maker. We've got a Star Wars holiday special cooked up for you. We'll be reviewing the new J.J. Abrams film, Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker. Yub nub, Wade. Yub nub. We're also going to be reviewing the new film from Clint Eastwood about the security guard who helped out during the 1996 Atlanta bombing, Richard Jewell. All that's coming up on this very special end-of-the-year episode, episode 230 of Seeing and Believing. Confronting fear is the destiny of a Jedi. Your destiny. If this mission fails, it was all for nothing. We're not alone. Good people will fight if we lead them. Your journey nears its end. Yes, we are here, episode 230 of Seeing and Believing. This is our last episode of 2019. Now, Kevin, we're we're waiting just a little bit before we have our big top 10 films of the year podcast. That'll come early in 2020, but we're going out. I think we're going out of 2019 with a bang today. Oh, yeah. I mean, a, a new Star Wars, and not just a new Star Wars, but the conclusion to a new Star Wars trilogy, those don't come around every decade. <laughs> we, we thought it was over in 1983. We thought it was over in 2005, and we're thinking it's over now. Well, we'll see. I mean, you never know. Kevin, one might argue that the film we're about to discuss has been in the making since 1977. That might be a bit of a stretch, but we do know one thing. Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker is being slated, as we mentioned, as the last of the Skywalker saga that began with George Lucas's 1977 science fiction classic. After Ryan Johnson's outing in 2017's The Last Jedi, J.J. Abrams takes back the reins of the series as director and co-writer of this conclusive installment. Episode 9's synopsis is pretty straightforward. What remains of the Resistance must do battle with the merciless First Order, led by Adam Driver's Kylo Ren, in order to free the galaxy from the threat of tyranny and usher in a new era of peace across the universe. This is not only the end of a trilogy, but the end of an era. The Rise of Skywalker also sees the return of a number of familiar faces, including Daisy Ridley as Rey, Oscar Isaac as Poe Dameron, John Boyega as Finn, and Billy D. Williams as the great Lando Calrissian. There are also some other casting surprises, but since this is a spoiler-free review, I won't divulge them here. Now, Kevin, before we jump into our review, I'd first like for you to give our listeners a recap of what you thought about The Force Awakens and The Last Jedi. How did both of those movies work for you? In addition, what were your hopes for this new installment? And if you will, did The Rise of Skywalker meet those expectations. 
Oh, good, good questions. So I guess to start off with, um, I liked the first two films in this latter trilogy. Um, the Force Awakens, I, I had a good time with. I was a little bit disappointed that it leaned as heavily on previously established Star Wars tropes as, as heavily as it did, I guess. Like, it it was good. I mean, good Star Wars is good. There's no question about that. But it was, it did feel a little bit like it was retreading a lot of plot beats from Lucas's originals, which, you know, was enjoyable, but maybe could have taken more risks, stretched a lot, a lot farther. The Last Jedi took risks in spades, and I liked it quite a bit for that and for other reasons. Probably... It's my favorite Star Wars movie uh, post-original trilogy. Uh, I would probably put it maybe number four in, in my ranking of all the Star Wars films. I like it quite a bit. Um, when it comes to this newest installment, I was hoping that it would be more The Last Jedi and less The Force Awakens. Uh, with J.J. Abrams returning to directing and writing duties, I I was a little bit concerned that what we would get it would be basically Return of the Jedi 2.0 in the same way that The Force Awakens felt a little bit like A New Hope 2.0. So my hope was that the film would take its cues more from uh, The Last Jedi than from The Force Awakens. And it's weird because I do think that it did... Uh, meet that expectation in that uh, Rise of Skywalker does not simply, you know, lean on the nostalgia button and not do anything new. There, there's, there's less of the leaning on uh, established Star Wars tropes that there was in The Force Awakens. So I did appreciate for that. But I was also hoping that Rise of Skywalker would would find a way to wrap things up in a way that felt more or less organic. And that, I think, is the big disappointment for me with this installment. I I didn't like Rise of Skywalker that much, Wade. I'm sorry to say. <laughs> yeah, so I'll give listeners kind of a recap for me. And it, it, it is kind of odd because we've reviewed the previous two films on the podcast. And it, so we're hitting, we're hitting almost five years. So it is kind of crazy to think that we will have reviewed this entire trilogy. And so it's it's nice to go back and listen to those episodes and kind of see what I thought about the trilogy before it started and then what I thought about those films when I first saw them. I think The Force Awakens and The Last Jedi, I think they're great. They're both in my top 10 of their respective years. The Force Awakens has has even kind of grown on me because it's just it's just so fun. And I agree that the movie should have taken more risks, especially in that back half. But it, it's, it's just so well made that it didn't bother me uh, all too much. I think The Last Jedi is, is like you said, it's, it's probably the best Star Wars film since Empire Strikes Back. I mean, it's really great. And I've grown to love that movie even more. My expectations for this film is... I. I guess I wasn't expecting it to break barriers uh, like The Last Jedi, uh, but I I was kind of going in expecting that we would get to see some very good characters and uh, that we would get to see a a well-told story like I I thought The Force Awakens was. And, um, you know, Kevin, I'm, I'm with you in that 
I, I don't think The Rise of Skywalker is actually a very good film. And there are a lot of reasons why I, I think that. I just, I walked away really disappointed because I, I was hoping for something big and something grand. And we get some new elements, but just overall, this movie is not put together very well. And part of that just starts with the pacing. This movie is is just running and running and running, and we don't get those really great character moments that I think we got in the previous two installments of the trilogy. The film never slows down for that. And if it does, it's it's put together so hastily that um, it doesn't resonate with me. And so, yeah, I walked away just kind of of sad at what could have been uh, versus what, what we received. This is, in a lot of ways, you you have to at least uh, give thanks to J.J. Abrams for giving such a tidy encapsulation of this film's problems in the very first sentence of the opening title call (laughs) for this film. So in the very first sentence, after the Star Wars logo uh, appears and recedes into the background and John Williams scores playing and the opening crawl begins, the very first sentence says, turns out Palpatine's back and it just goes from there. And it's just, it's remarkable how little effort is put into really easing the viewer into into that revelation. It's just from right off the bat, we discover that Palpatine is back, that Kylo Ren and and Rey need to find him and stop him, but those the the reason that those are the stakes have not been established at all. It's like all of that scene setting has taken place in some gap between The Last Jedi and Rise of Skywalker that we never get to see. So right off the bat, the audience is just thrown into kind of basically an entirely redefined universe where it's not entirely clear what all of the characters want and why they want them and how Palpatine is even back. It's just sort of, it's just sort of, that's the price of admission for this movie is you just have to accept that Palpatine is is alive. He's always been alive. There are certain things he's been doing behind the scenes that haven't been hinted at in previous movies. It's almost as if if J.J. Abrams had this plan sketched out for this latter trilogy at the beginning of Force Awakens, and then Ryan Johnson kind of went in a different direction with The Last Jedi, it's almost like J.J. Abrams came back and just sort of stapled on the third act for his original plan without taking any consideration for how that plan needed to shift in order to accommodate where the second installment went. It's just, it's just a mess. And and two, I'm okay with a time jump and a plot jump. And I, I think Star Wars can work on that level. And, you know, we saw that from A New Hope to Empire Strikes Back, just kind of this big jump. We leave the group and it's a celebration and then they're on the run. It it can work. This is a huge jump. And we're, we're told that what's going on here has been happening behind the scenes for a very long time. And it's like you mentioned, there is no hint of that. And then we get a glimpse of Palpatine's plan and it's like, wait, how, how did how did that get there? Why are these people here? And 
It just feels like the film is generating conflict out of thin air. I I I left the film, and I'm I'm going to see this movie again this weekend uh, with with Priscilla and and Weston. We're gonna we're gonna check it out again, and maybe it'll work better a second time. Maybe some of the dots will be connected. I I just it's very haphazard, and I, I saw um, Brian Tallarico. He gave just kind of a quick hit on the movie, and he basically said like this is J.J. Abrams making a sequel to The Force Awakens not making a sequel to Johnson's film. And it's just, it's it's kind of, it, it's just bewilders me. And then two, also, Kevin, in some ways, I buy that. Okay, he's making a sequel to his film. At the same time, there are, there are characters and scenes that he connects in his movie that he doesn't seem to care all that much about. And I'll be vague about it, but there's one relationship that is just kind of pushed a romantic relationship or a possible romantic relationship that's pushed in The Force Awakens. And here it's hinted at, and then it just disappears as if (laughs) it doesn't matter at all. And it's just so confusing to me why some of these threads are hanging where they are. And then on top of that, the movie's just going from place to place to place to place to place. Um chasing a MacGuffin. I saw it with, with Joshua Wilson. He's um, talked with us on the show before, and, and it's he made the same comment. It's kind of like a video game. It's just, you know, you complete this level, you go to the next level, and uh, which is just, dis- you know, very disappointing for me. There is so much plot in this movie that I have to think that this romantic relationship that you hint at, I have to wonder if maybe the the resolution to that relationship just kind of got dropped in editing because it's it's sort of hinted at in 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 a a first beat in the second plot beat it's referenced again and then there's never like you said it just sort of drops off the map and is never mentioned again or even really hinted at and it's just a very odd structural choice but i think that's partly a casualty of just how much incident is packed into this movie. I think it's instructive to go back and rewatch Lucas's originals because at their core, they're pretty simple plots. The the first one is, you know, the the first act is sort of getting all of the information established, introducing us to Luke, getting us off of Tatooine. The second act is all about infiltrating the Death Star. The third act is all about blowing up the Death Star. The uh, Empire Strikes Back, uh, Luke goes off on his training, and Han and Leia and the rest go on their adventure on the Millennium Falcon, and they both converge on Cloud City, and there's a big climax there. Return of the Jedi is sort of like they have to go and uh, essentially destroy the reconstructed Death Star, and this is accomplished, again, with that kind of parallel track plotting. These are not difficult plots to follow or particularly complex in the various paths that the characters take through them. In Rise of Skywalker, they go so many places, and they're chasing so many things, and there are enough plot twists that recontextualize the action that you've been following up to that point that you kind of have to wonder... Why is why is it so complicated? I guess if if Star Wars is at space a space opera where uh, basically we're having a straightforward adventure with uh, characters that we like being around, why why so much stuff has to be a, 
accumulated onto this basic story of what is at its core basically about Ray trying to find out the truth about its family. That's sort of the kernel that I think we see Abrams settle on with Rise of Skywalker. And that part of the film more or less works, but it's completely distracted from by all of this other stuff. And it destabilizes the movie. And as a result, the big uh, payoffs that Abrams inserts into this movie for Ray's central character arc don't really land with the oomph they should because there's so much other whiz-bang stuff happening at the same time that even on taken on their own terms just aren't all that interesting. Yeah, and and, there, and there's there's a lack of tension too with the film. So part of Star Wars and and the beauty of this universe is is the environments, is the technology the alien creatures, the planets. Why Why do we keep wanting to go back to Tatooine? Because in A New Hope, we have that whole, like you mentioned, the whole first act. And, and a, a majority, I, I say majority, a good chunk of it is just C-3PO and R2-D2 wandering around in the desert. And we get to see these creatures and we get to see the Jawas and, and we get to see the sand people. And it's all just kind of, it's all just kind of fun. When we go to Hoth, we we get to really just integrate ourselves in in this planet. We get to know this planet. Same thing with Endor, and even with Jakku in the Force Awakens. That whole section where we're just following around Rey, and we get to sink into her world and her life. And the film takes its time, and we get to listen to John John Williams's score and and Rey's theme, and it's it's just it's world building. And it's character building. We don't get any of that here. And we don't get to know any of the planets that they visit. Some of them are, they're okay. We get this fun little festival, but but that's about it. And because the film doesn't ever take its time, we lose, we lose what's meant to drive the action. So I've got a couple of examples. One of them is a couple of characters fall into kind of like quicksand. It looks different than quicksand. It's 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 kind of unique. And they're in the quicksand and they I, I'm so surprised at how quickly they fall. We we don't ever get the sense that like the the danger is momentary because they're just they're there and then they're gone. And it eliminates that that tension. There's a, another scene where a character is crossing a large body of water and it feels dangerous for a moment and then it's done and it's over. There are other characters who we we think could die or could pass away and, and some of those moments are emotional and then the film just moves on. It just goes forward and there's <laughs> one section in particular is with C-3PO and we get this great line that he has in the trailer and then the film just kind of moves past it and I, I just, yeah, I, I guess you could say I'm just, just very disappointed and kind of confused that that this is this is here. It's, it's as if J.J. Abrams forgot everything that he learned about Star Wars and he put into focus in The Force Awakens and just kind of went off on this this plot driven story versus the character driven story that he had in his previous picture. Well, the and the the breakneck editing 
uh, weakens the film not just on an emotional level, which you very nicely pointed out about various moments of of tension or excitement or sadness in the film, but also just on a purely um, information-giving level or in terms of the pacing, the editing of this film just there's no time for anything to breathe and it leads to some plot logic problems where uh we have our heroes on a certain planet and they're searching for for a clue to find where where palpatine is uh and while they're there uh there's an exchange uh between uh, Rey and Kylo because they they have that that same link that was portrayed in the last jedi and then literal I don't know, two minutes later, the, you know, the bad guys are descending on our heroes on this planet, even though they must have been like, you know, in a completely different star system than them. And, you know, I, there's, there's certain things that you kind of like hand wave away about space travel, just because it's more interesting to have fun at a movie than to quibble about physics. I mean, we're not going to get all Neil deGrasse Tyson on this stuff here, but choices like that on Abrams part to really compress the the time and and kind of move us on to the next leg of the hero's quest it, it leads to a, a a feeling not only that none of the action really matters on an emotional level but even on a plot level you can't really get invested in what's happening on screen because your suspension of disbelief is being strained at every moment and part of that is due not only to the the writing and the plotting but also in the way that this movie is put together on a technical level no i i agree i i i think there are some there are some bright moments and and this is not this is not a boring film and i i i love star wars and so it's one of those one of those issues where I'll probably watch this film many times just because I, I like Star Wars and I like the previous films and uh, I'll watch this film many times. There are elements that I appreciate. I One of my favorite aspects of The Last Jedi is the relationship that Johnson formed between Kylo Ren and Rey. Uh, there's always just something kind of special between those two actors and we get some some good moments here in the movie and in particular, they are still able to connect via the Force. And we've got a nice little almost wrinkle on that. And I, I appreciate that moment. There's a surprise appearance later on in the movie, and I think it's, it's, it's an emotional section of the film. I think it's really good. That was my favorite part of the movie just because of, of what kind of occurs, what happens in that moment. And... Uh, I, 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 I was interested in seeing where Ray and Rin would kind of go. I think the ending of the film doesn't capitalize on what's happened between them like it should. Uh, I was disappointed in that. There is a nice moment uh, towards the end of the movie that I won't spoil that I, I thought was, was great. I was also <laughs> disappointed too, Kevin. Uh, we... Hear about the Knights of Ren in The Force Awakens, and I kept saying to myself, "Oh, I can't wait till we we get to know these individuals who sided <laughs> with Kylo Ren, and that that just has the ability to be really cool. If we're if we're just gonna go for whiz bang, let's go for whiz bang. They are so disappointing here. <laughs> just a just a bunch <sighs> of guys like carrying axes. Oh, it's my it's very strange. <laughs> I it, mean, it, it's just." It, that's the thing that just kind of confused me, and, and maybe there's more on the editing floor we just didn't get. I, I don't know. 
I, you know, it, it's, it's weird because there are all of these things that, you know, Abrams is, is the, the old cliche about him is that he's a puzzle box director. Like he, he enjoys creating mysteries in his plots that later installments in the franchise will, will seek to answer. And part of the fun of watching the entertainments that he makes is, is sort of going on that ride and, and sort of being so intrigued by mysteries that are teased and hopeful that the reveal is going to be as mind-blowing as you hope they will. The weakness of that approach is often that when the reveal comes, it's, it's a little bit disappointing, like you noted with the Knights of Ren. And it's disappointing for another reason, too, because I do think that uh, the filmmaking team over at Disney, uh, the, the idea that they have for this latter trilogy, I think at base is actually pretty compelling. Kylo Ren is a very interesting character. It's, it's a way to portray, uh, a dark side of the force, uh, aligned person, uh, it's different from the way we normally have seen those in other Star Wars films. The relationship between him and Rey is really interesting. And it also gives them the ability to explore um, the themes of mercy and redemption in new ways. I mean, that's something that has been part of Star Wars from the very beginning. You know, Darth Vader's redemption is core to the original trilogy, and uh, his fall is core to the prequel trilogy. With this one, we see we often see Kylo and other characters as well uh, talk about how you know the past has already happened and there's no going back. Like they've they've gone so far that there's no turning back and they might as well just turn to the dark side or persist in running or whatever it might be. There's this, there's this sense that something has been spoiled and there's no going back. I can't get it back. There's no reason even to hope that we can get that back. And the ways in which that is presented in this film and especially with the way that it is resolved for one character in particular is just, it's, it's, I think it's probably the, uh, spoilery moment that you were talking about just now, Wade. So I, I don't want to get too far into detail, but it's extremely touching. And, uh, especially for a Christian viewer, it, it evokes the same sorts of emotions that you might feel about Jesus offer of, you know, just come home, the prodigal son returning, uh, and finding his father not angry with him, but welcoming of him. That's such a wonderful story. And the J.J. Uh, Abrams and the the writers and the producers and everybody who worked on these films seem to be onto something with that in this film. It's just such a shame that it's distracted by all of this other plot cruft that actively makes the movie worse from a uh, pacing and plot perspective, but also on a thematic level, it just it distracts from what's really special about the story, and that's that's just a shame. Yeah, because it's 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 a really great section of the movie, and and perhaps that's that's why I'll I'll watch this film uh, many times in the future, uh, and just because I I am a, a fan of of Star Wars, I I like to touch on the themes of the film, and you mentioned it well, I. I also felt like the end of the movie thematically was a bit muddled. So Return of the Jedi, you definitely have this this victory via sacrifice. And and here, 
there's, and I'm trying to skirt around this, it's just, I don't quite understand what the film is trying to say at the end. Um, There's this idea of we shouldn't kill, but the motivation for this, hey, we can't kill this individual, is not because of any type of forgiveness or grace, but it's just necessity. And then the resolution to that, it just, it feels off to me. Maybe it's just there's no clear direction on what all of this is supposed to mean. Now, we do get the sense that this is a film about lineage, like really most Star Wars films, and about the power of the Force and the connectivity of the Force. And I think that's kind of highlighted towards the end, but it it doesn't play out with Palpatine and with our core characters like it should play out. Um, and then we just have some fan service stuff at the very end of the movie that I it does not work. It does not work. One one character is given something in response to fan questions at the end of the movie and i just i'm okay with some nostalgia but other times it's just a it's just too much the the climactic confrontation you're talking about i agree simply doesn't work i think it's mostly just because like we were talking back at the beginning of the segment there's so much new stuff that we've never seen before in Star Wars that are sort of presented to us and asked to take on faith related to uh, the rules for how the Jedi and the Sith uh, are related to each other, the the ways in which the whole cosmology of the Force is conceived of. There's so much new stuff introduced into that dynamic that when we kind of get this big climactic confrontation uh, involving Palpatine, the ways in which that the directions in which that goes are just not only thematically muddled but just from a plot logic standpoint again it's sort of it there's a lot to to take in and it doesn't entirely work i think the the very final moments you're talking about i didn't have as big of a problem with it because it does seem to be tying into that theme of lineage and legacy that you're talking about before i i'm not sure so much that it doesn't work or is pointless nostalgia i think it's more that the film hasn't really put in the effort to set that up so that the when the payoff comes it feels meaningful and i i feel like a broken record saying this because there's so much incident elsewhere in the film, diverting our attention from what's really important. Yeah, and we're, we're, we're all kind of talking around this, so we can't be very specific on, on what we're trying to describe. Uh, visually, for the film, I, I didn't walk away with too many images that are memorable, and I, I wish that were not the case, because I think that The Last Jedi and The Force Awakens offer us some just fantastic compositions. I think that some of the production design here is very bland, especially in the space where that last confrontation occurs. It it just feels a, a little feels a little bit off in comparison to the big confrontation with Rey and Kylo Ren in The Force Awakens, which I think works pretty well. Oh yeah, there there's nothing on the level of the climactic throne room showdown from Return of the Jedi or that beautifully shot 
uh, nighttime lightsaber duel between Rey and Kylo in The Force Awakens or the Cloud City duel in Empire Strikes Back. I could go on. This film, it's, it's hard for me to tell whether the reason I was so disinterested in the outcome of a lot of the action is because it's not shot very well or because the way that the movie is structured makes the stakes feel kind of inconsequential and low. I, I, I have to see it again to really parse that distinction fully. And I, like you, Wade, I am going to be seeing it this weekend with friends as well. And I have to say, I, I, I'm kind of dreading it because this is a two and a half hour movie. And regardless of what the ultimate culprit is here, the the, the plot structure, the writing, or the visuals, the, the fact is that neither of those things are really interesting enough for me to look forward to experiencing them a second time. Yeah, which is, you know, for me, I, I saw Force Awakens t- three times in theaters. I, of course, saw Last Jedi twice. Um, I saw Avengers Endgame a couple days after I saw it for the first time, and that film is three hours long. And this one just, I'm... I'm excited to see it with with Wesson because he's he just loves Star Wars and and that'll be fun. But for the film, I I, I don't know. But we'll see. I'll, I'll watch the movie and see if any of my opinions uh, change. And, and maybe we'll get like a, a recap next week or something. Kevin, did you change? <laughs> did you like it more or less? You know, the second time. Uh, that that is going to be the uh, the. $600 million question for Disney, at least, is are people going to see this a second time after the entire world sees it the first time? I think that is the the big question for sure. Listeners, you are probably not listening to this until after you have seen the movie for yourselves. We hope that that is the case so that you can tell us what you thought of this movie. Uh, you can always email us at seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. You can always send us a tweet at cbelieve pod as well we'd love to hear your thoughts this is in some ways wade the big movie event of the year or at least of the winter so mm-hmm. we're definitely looking forward to hearing everything our listeners yeah. have to tell us about this don't go anywhere in the second segment we're going to be going in a little bit of a different direction with clint eastwood's richard jewell i don't like the song is Toss and Turn by Stoop Kids. Kevin, I really want to take an opportunity at the end of 2019 to thank all of our listeners who supported us throughout the year, kept this podcast going. They did so through our Patreon page. And for any listeners out there who are saying, you know, I, I really like this podcast. I want to make sure that I help them out along in this journey, you can support us via Patreon. Just go to patreon.com 
forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast. We have a number of different donation levels. And one of those that we like a lot is the what can you buy for $5 level. It's a pretty fantastic place to be. I'll just put it at that. And Kevin, I was I was wondering, uh, what could someone buy for five bucks? Well, uh, you know, the, I think it was a couple of years ago, or I, I don't remember how long ago it was, but there was that whole Chewbacca mom video. I don't know if you remember oh, about yeah, the, you yeah. know, the, the mom went out and she bought that Chewbacca mask and it was the best day of her life, apparently. Uh, $5 would get you an Ebenezer Scrooge mask so that whenever you put it on and talk, he just says, you know, bah humbug at everybody. And then you can have the same amount of Christmas mm. cheer for yourself that Chewbacca mom had. I don't know if it would have the same effect on the people around you, mm. but you know, that's as may be. It seems like, a you know, you could do worse with your five bucks. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then there could be a setting too. Where it's it's after he changes, so you, you you hit that setting and it's the cheerful Ebenezer Scrooge. So it really kind of fits your mood, whether you're just kind of feeling down about the Christmas season or you're having a good time living it up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I think I would rather have maybe like a tiny Tim mask to kind of God oh. bless us everyone if I were feeling uh, in a more jolly uh, frame of mind, but. You know, you do you. Yeah, you do whatever fits you best. Listeners, just go to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast to check out that what can you buy for $5 level. Like I said, we very much appreciate it. And now, Wade, I would very much appreciate it if you give your answer to the question that has bedeviled philosopher sages for a very long time. Is Die Hard a Christmas movie? You know, the the answer is yes and no. Do you breathe oxygen on Christmas Day or every day? You could say oxygen is a Christmas thing. It's also an everyday thing. So I don't think we should limit it at the same time. We should also get specific and say, yes, you should watch it during Christmas time. But you should also watch it in February and March and April every, every month because it's that good. <laughs> You know, I, I, when, when you first uh, started making this analogy, I was about to take you, I was thinking I was going to take you to task for giving such a middle of the road answer instead of coming down hard on one side or the other. But I like the oxygen analogy so much, Wade, that I'm going to get into the Christmas spirit and say, well done. I think that is a very good answer. <laughs> You aren't the only one, of course, who's been answering that question lately. Over on ChristPopCulture.com, our sister podcast, Persuasion, part of the Christ and Pop Culture podcast network, just came out this week, Wade, with a new episode about Die Hard. It's titled A Die Hard Christmas. It's their 180th episode, so well done there, Persuasion. They talk about films like Die Hard that maybe uh, do new things with our traditional notions of Christmas, peace on earth, and goodwill toward men. So I haven't had a chance to listen to that episode because as of this recording, it's only been out for less than 24 hours. But I am looking forward to encountering that. And if you donate $5 to become a member of Christ and Pop Culture instead of becoming one of our Patreon subscribers, hey, that's okay with me if we get more episodes like this from Persuasion. <laughs> I, I can't wait to 
I can't wait to listen to it either because I love, I love Die Hard. It's just, oh, it's just such a good movie. One of the best action films of all time. So as, as I noted when I mentioned that you should watch it all of the time. Kevin, I, I did have this, just a brief thought. What are some of your favorite Christmas movies? I mean, is there a movie you watch every single year? Uh, I always watch It's a Wonderful Life every single year. Uh, that's maybe a little bit of a boring answer, but I, you know, whatever. I, I love that movie. I think it's a great, it's a great Christmas movie. It's a great movie, period. And probably because of my tradition of watching it every single year, I've probably seen that Frank Capra film more than any other film in existence. I, I like it that much. And it's my, it's the only Christmas tradition that I I have that I simply, you know, I, I don't miss it. Other things I might let slide, but not my annual viewing of It's a Wonderful Life. Um, I also want to put in a plug for maybe a little seen Arnold Schwarzenegger comedy called Jingle All the Way. Uh, <laughs> it's I'm not going to argue that it's a great movie, but I think it is an extremely underrated movie. Sinbad has never been funnier. And I, I don't know, I think it's got just the exactly correct warped take on the Christmas season, particularly consumerism of the Christmas season that I think, I think it's a shame that people kind of write it off as just sort of a kindergarten cop style Arnold comedy when I think it's a little bit smarter than that. So I don't know, I'll put a plug in for that as well, since It's a Wonderful Life is maybe a little bit less of an interesting answer. Yeah, no, I, I like Jingle all the way. And uh, I like It's a Wonderful Life. I usually watch it every year. I've watched it the last two years, and we plan to watch it this year. Uh, I love that movie. I watch Home Alone 2, usually Home Alone 1, every every year as well. Um, just because, yeah, I've watched those films so many times. But yeah, some good traditions. And, and a lot of people's traditions involve movies over the holidays, which is, you know, it's kind of fascinating. I know we're, we're kind of going off topic, but uh, maybe good for, for this end of the year podcast. Yeah, well, listeners, if, if you uh, hear this and want to share some of your own movie-related Christmas traditions, we'd love to hear them. We uh, let you know about our email and our Twitter already. You can send those to us along with your Star Wars thoughts if you'd like. We'd love to hear them and get a little bit of your Christmas cheer in our podcasting lives. My name is Barbara Jewell. Approximately four weeks ago, over 100 people were injured and two people lost their lives as a result of the bombing. My heart goes out to these victims and their families. I am so very drained. I do not think any of you can even begin to imagine what our lives are like. The media has portrayed my son as the person who has committed this crime. They have taken all privacy from us. They have taken all peace. The FBI follows his every move and watches my home constantly. And why? My son. My son is innocent. Mr. President, 
Please clear my son's name. Well, we're here in the second segment, moving away from a galaxy far, far away and returning to an Earth that is all too present. That's right, Wade. It's time to get back into prestige movie season, which is ongoing with our review of the new Eastwood movie. Yeah. Uh, as listeners know, I, I'm very fascinated by Eastwood, especially his his work as of late. So I'm I'm looking forward to kind of digging into that versus... Versus my frustration with the rise of Skywalker. <laughs> well, I'm interested to hear how this film measures up. Eastwood, as you mentioned, has been extraordinarily prolific in his uh, twilight years here. He's been making movies at a really steady clip. And we're lucky enough to review the latest one on the show today. He returns to one of his signature themes with this film, one that viewers who saw his 2016 film Sully will be familiar with. A plain-spoken man whose heroic efforts to do his duty and save lives are overshadowed by attempts to scapegoat him. The man with a name in Eastwood's new film is Richard Jewell, the Atlantis security guard who helped save lives in the pipe bomb attack on a park full of people during the 1996 Summer Olympics. Played here by Paul Walter Hauser, perhaps best known for his role in a very different Olympics story, I, Tanya, <laughs> Richard Jewell is an ordinary Joe whose zealous pursuit of preserving the public safety leads to his being lauded as a hero in the wake of the bombing only to find the media and the public turning on him when the FBI tries to pin the act of terrorism on him. Co-starring Sam Rockwell and Kathy Bates as Jewel's lawyer and mother, respectively, Eastwood's film explores what happens when large organizations turn their ill will directly on a single innocent individual, aiming to make him a bad guy. So, Wade, this is uh, not the first film that Eastwood has made that's based... That's that's set in the present day in a contemporary time period, more or less, and that centers on real world figures, maybe not celebrity heroes that we may have heard of, but people who have actually done some pretty remarkable things. It seems to be ground that he's really comfortable with. I'm curious to know what you make of Eastwood's general approach with stories like these, and how well do you think it works with Richard Jewell? Yeah, so no, you you set it up pretty well because we got the fifteen seventeen to Paris in two thousand eighteen last year, Sully in two thousand sixteen, and American Sniper in two thousand fourteen, and then you could also look at Invictus in two thousand and nine. Though the the hero of that story is is more well known. I I think that Eastwood's workmanlike quality especially in the latter part of his career seems to fit well with these types of stories because they are about average everyday people doing extraordinary things and when i say extraordinary i I don't really mean superhero feats of strength i mean just being faithful in the moment and that's really what sully does He is an individual who has racked up all of these training hours, and in the moment, he just relies on his his work ethic. He relies on the habits that he formed over time. If you think about the 1517 to Paris, that film is 
if somebody says, hey, is that a bad film? Yeah, there are parts of it that are really bad. But it's just, it's so interesting and fascinating to think about because Eastwood casts the individuals who were the heroes in this movie. And he he makes great strides to say, hey, they're not particularly that heroic. Um, the main character is actually not that great of a soldier. He kind of messes things up. And they're actually saved at the end when the machine gun jams. And so there are all these kind of, all these things kind of working in their favor in order for them to be heroic. And so then we get, we get this story, Richard Jewell, same thing. He doesn't prevent the bomb, but he does save lives. And, and, you know, I, I remember when this happened and my family from Atlanta, when the Olympics came in 1996, I mean, they were just, they freaked out. We got all these shirts and everything um, from the Olympic Games just because they were so excited. I was there recently just and went through Centennial Park uh, in Atlanta October. So I'm familiar with the bombing, not so much with Richard Jewell. And so it's fascinating just to kind of just kind of examine who this person is. And he he's someone I feel like we would meet that I would meet in real life that I would that I have met in real life. And so that that adds a new dynamic to this story. What what about you Kevin? I know you're not as into Eastwood's latter work as as I am. Um but what do you, what do you make of his of his stories recently with these types of individuals? Yeah, I mean, I liked Sully um pretty well, but overall, yeah, I've been a little bit disenchanted with his films since maybe Million Dollar Baby, which I like. I like Million Dollar Baby quite a bit. Uh, I still think it's a, a very strong film. I think something about his, his later films. You mentioned the workmanlike quality of them, and I think that that's sometimes to to his films. But if I think solely, there is a matter of factness to the way that he directs that film that works really well for the material. I think overall, though, his films, his latter films tend to shade from workmanlike to being a little bit bland. And I think that that's the case with Richard Jewell as well, in that there's there's just an on-the-nose quality, I guess, to so much of this film that I don't necessarily have a problem with. It just doesn't make for a particularly engaging bit of of cinema for me. This is the sort of movie that's about, you know, the governmental overreach and the fact that there are worse things than acts of terrorism out in the world. And there's literally a sign in Sam Rockwell's character's office that says, I fear the I fear the government more than I fear terrorism, which is sort of like uh, outlining the theme of the movie in, in bright neon letters. And I think it's that lack of subtlety that maybe springs out of Eastwood's very, like you said, workmanlike approach, his tendency to to shoot fast and efficiently, maybe at the expense of allowing a little bit of, of spontaneity or um or more creative subtlety into his films. So I think that there's nothing necessarily that I would say is bad about Richard Jewell, but there's not a whole lot that I would say is particularly good about it either. And I think I think that's a problem. Although now that I say that, I think we maybe do need to address the elephant room and talk about the the really bad thing about this movie, which is Olivia Wilde's journalist character. Yeah. 
I, I think that it that to me is the the blemish on this movie. I I do like this movie. I actually like this movie quite a bit. But to kind of catch listeners up to speed, Olivia Wilde, she plays a character in this film who is based on Kathy Scruggs. Her name actually in the film is Kathy Scruggs. And she is a journalist who covered this story. In the film, Olivia Wilde's character sleeps with an FBI agent, played by John Hamm, in order to get information, which she uses to really kind of expose this story about Richard Jewell and how the FBI is investigating him, which in turn really hurts Richard Jewell. Now, there's no evidence that Kathy Scruggs ever slept with an FBI agent. And so what we get is we get Eastwood almost trying to amp up the story, but he's he's doing it in a way that I think is unethical. And there's always that question of, of what do you change in, in a based on real life story? And I remember when Steven Spielberg released Lincoln and he, he changed the votes of certain states. You had states getting angry, the, the, the government in states getting angry saying, no, historically our state did not vote that way. We voted this way. And it's just to kind of ramp things up and we get that here. And then also, I'd like to discuss this more. Clint Eastwood is a conservative, and and just the idea of of the media and what's going on in our culture and the FBI, and, and how that plays into everything. And it's just it's not a good look. And Olivia Wilde has has talked about how she thought that these two characters in the story previously had this type of re- relationship or were in the middle of this type of relationship. So there is this sort of molding with the director, and I'd like to get into more detail on on the way the film approaches the FBI and the way the film approaches journalism. But yeah, that's that's something that I don't appreciate about this film, and I think people are right to, to call it out because this is a film that says, hey, we want the truth to come out, but then stretches the truth uh, in order to make the film more exciting or to push a particular ideology. Well, there's a couple of dimensions to to – that character and the maybe the film's general approach to the antagonist in this film. I mean, you already mentioned the unethical part, the the fact that this reporter was a real person, that there's not really any indication that she uh, operated in the manner that she's portrayed in doing this way. That does seem pretty uh, questionable ethically and also works a little bit against <laughs> Eastwood's, the, the entire theme of the film, which is that simply accusing someone of something they didn't do or insinuating that just to gin up outrage is wrong. I mean, that that just runs counter to the film's entire thesis. I think even beyond that, though, there's there's an aesthetic problem with it too in that she's not really a character <laughs> she, like she doesn't feel like a fleshed out human in the same way that jewel and his mother and his lawyer do and i mean that's not necessarily to say that she needs to be as fully realized as the protagonist i mean there's she's she is a supporting character 
in this overall drama, but to have such a caricatured version of the evil journalist in this movie, I mean, literally the first scene that we see her and she's talking about how she loves hot murders and is seeing, you know, like talking about getting plastic surgery in order to uh, get more attention. It's just, it's so gratingly two-dimensional that it it really makes the viewer, or at least me, less likely to want to buy into the true story that is at this film's core because that part is just so patently unrealistic that it it just damages everything else that about the world that Eastwood is creating on screen here. Yeah, and I think at one point she she prays and she's not praying for the victims of the bombing. She's praying that they would find the person who, who bombed <laughs> yeah, it first. If, if, if she had a mustache in that moment, she'd be twirling it. It's just, it's way over the top. Yeah. And, you know, it, it's interesting to contrast her character with John Hamm's character. Now, John Hamm's character is a composite of, from what I understand, of different FBI agents. And most of what happens with the FBI and Jewel is true and there's some there's some stuff that just makes you very very angry but he's a composite and they gave him a new name if i'm understanding this correctly from what from what i've read some research i've done and with him even though he is a jerk we do get enough story that we kind of understand why he's a jerk he's there when the bombing goes off it happened under his watch he wasn't in his mind, paying attention, and he wants to nab the person, and he gets tunnel vision. And I don't like him. I don't necessarily hate him. I think he just wants to find the person who did it, and he thinks he knows who did it. It's just, it's bad work. But he seems to be a more grounded character. I think he could have been fleshed out more, obviously, but he is he is grounded. And just thinking back, to these themes, too, with Eastwood, it's fascinating to see his filmography. And I think I think, I think, think he's more complicated than people will let on because of his political views. But if you, if you look at what he's done, in The Changeling, he critiques the local law enforcement, which doesn't seem like something a conservative in our environment would do. He critiques the military in Flags of Our Fathers and Letters from Iwo Jima. So there, there is this element here that he, he he's not he's not a, a black and white person that that he could be seen as. So all that's kind of working in the background of this film. I, I think what I appreciate so much about this movie is that it brings to life characters that we don't necessarily see on screen and if we do they're caricatures uh like i mean we did see that with the with the journalist but with richard jewell he is a real person and they live in a real apartment and the workmanlike quality and the production design it just feels it feels lived in and this is an individual from the south he is uh slightly over he, he is overweight he is not the most articulate individual. He wants to be a police officer, but he doesn't do a great job half the time. He makes some bad choices. He doesn't follow the lead of his lawyer. He just feels 
real. And we get that on screen. And, and part of that is the hero myth that Eastwood is simultaneously building and deconstructing. And if you look at his films that he started and he made a name in, he represents a certain type of hero. And now he's giving us different heroes. And I, I just really appreciate that. And then also, I just, I, I found the film captivating in its own, its own way. Paul Walter Hauser, I think his performance is so good in this film that, uh, I mean, for me, he, he threw the, the more problematic performances into sharper relief, but he also just does such a good job about, uh, sketching Richard Jewell as a person who, uh, it doesn't, it doesn't feel like the sort of performance where, uh, the actor is condescending to the character he's playing or inviting the audience to condescend to that character. So like you mentioned, Richard Jewell is sort of, he's kind of an average Joe. There's nothing really remarkable remarkable about him. And in some moments, he does come across as a little bit, I, I don't want to say buffoonish necessarily, but he's got certain uh, quirks that are, are presented uh, honestly. And it would be easy for that portrayal to tip over into, uh, you know, kind of making fun of him a little bit or, or presenting him as the butt of the joke. But I think Eastwood's direction manages to walk that line pretty well. And Hauser's performance, I think, is the real strong point of this film. It's the steady center where... We, we understand him. We understand the, the quirks that make him kind of a soft target for the FBI to go after. But there's also a, a core of, of integrity to him that Eastwood does a really great job at drawing out. That he's not uh, aspiring to uh, be a police officer or to work security because he's kind of just a guy who's obsessed. He's... He does it because he feels a really strong vocation toward that kind of work and feels very strongly about its value. And that's something that Eastwood, as a conservative filmmaker especially, um, is well-suited to draw out the virtues of that kind of viewpoint. And I think that working together with Hauser in this role, he he does that quite well. Yeah, Hauser's fantastic. I like Sam Rockwell. I, 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 I think he's a good performer. I just, I, I don't know, maybe it's the roles that he's taking on, uh, but I think that he does a fantastic job here to, uh, to, really, to really let himself open up and interact with Hauser's character, and uh, I, I just think, I think it works. I think their dynamic works. I think that, uh, I think Kathy Bates does a fine job. It's just this this mom who's who's proud of her son and who's who's hurt when her son hurts. I you know I, I think she does well. I think she, her character probably could have been fleshed out a little bit more, but it, but I think it works. I I felt during this film like I've heard people talk about how how I also felt during Oliver Stone's JFK. It's this idea that the government that we see as a protective shield could reach out and grab anyone at any moment. And we've seen this portrayed in a number of different movies from a number of different perspectives. I think we get that feeling here that there's so much power concentrated in a government that you need ethical people because you could be, as as Sam Rockwell's character says, railroaded. And I think the film really leans into that paranoia 
that Jewel faces, that his mother faces. And I I got frustrated too. I got worried too. I I felt like Eastwood did a fine job of bringing us into that story and essentially saying, "Hey, what if what if this happened to you?" and to help us to see just the the pain that this caused someone who was just trying to uh just trying to do their job and and you see that with Sully as well right he he does this incredible maneuver he saves lives and then as a result of his heroism uh he is being critiqued and so we get some similar themes uh there some crossover there yeah and i think that that's something that eastwood has always been really interested in is the 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 person who has the strong calling or the strong sense of duty and just executes that calling with with precision and with with this unfussy sincere belief in the goodness of what he is doing cuz i mean let's face it eastwood often makes uh movies about men of action but it's not always sort of the the stereotypical man of action who's you know just sort of dominates others and you know the action hero archetype eastwood seems a lot more interested in a whole range of men who just have that strong calling and just try to do their best in that chosen calling and i think that this film is the latest example of that interest of his i don't think he does as good of a job of it as he does with Sully. I mean, this is territory that, you know, the the government railroading the little guy. I mean, this is a story that we've seen many times before. So you kind of know the way that these beats are going to go. So I don't think it's maybe as revelatory as maybe some of Eastwood's other work. But I do think that that perspective he brings to this material is pretty distinctive to him. And I'm glad that he he took it on despite the film's other flaws. I think too, you know, we're, we're talking about Star Wars and how much plot there is. And, and it's, it's fascinating to look at this film and to also look at Sully and to see how economic the story is, how economic the plot is. And, and when you think about both of these movies, I know at least for me, I thought to myself, how is this going to be a film? How is Sully going to be a full-length movie? How is Richard Jewell going to be a full-length movie? And even that, a two-hour and 15, two-hour and 10-minute movie. How is it going to fill the spaces? And somehow he does, and he tells these stories about these individuals, and we connect with them, and we see their life, and we get to know them. And I, I, I appreciate that. I appreciate that we get to know a person like this who lives in the South, who is uh, not a caricature and who lives in just an average apartment like many people do. And we get to just kind of see him wandering around and we know he's being mistreated and we see him being mistreated for who he is. At the same time, it's not as blatant as it could be before the bombing, obviously. Um, but but I, I just I, I appreciate the way that he handles these stories, which also makes me even more disappointed in the way that he fumbles the ball, uh, particularly regarding Olivia Wilde's character. 
Yeah, it's, it's hard to say whether that's Eastwood necessarily. I think it's partly the way that Eastwood uh, directs Wilde to deliver this performance, but it's also, it's the sort of part that as written probably was unfixable. It's it's surprising to me that Billy Ray, whose who's work I appreciate quite a bit on, on other films, wrote this story in this way, I guess. I think that he's capable of better. Even in the same film, there's a, a an altercation that happens between uh, Sam Rockwell and Paul Walter Hauser, where Richard Jewell essentially unburdens himself. He says, I know how people see me. I know that they think that I'm sort of this this bumbling guy who's who's overweight and who just doesn't really who's not very smart and I get it but I liked you because you saw me as a person and that entire scene is so touching because it lets us a little bit into uh Richard Jewell's not just his his zeal, but also his self-awareness, that he knows how other people see him and how he chafes under that uh, that preconception, even as he, he knows that he can't really help playing into it a little bit because he's just who he is. And that's it's it's a subtle bit of uh, psychology uh, on the part of Billy Ray and Eastwood directing them that I... I was too often missing from the rest of the film, and I wish I had seen more of. I liked it better than that, and, it, and I, I thought it did a, a pretty good job. And, and then, too, you know, just just the title, what it's saying is, this is about reputation. This is about the way that we perceive individuals. And this is about who a person is, who they are behind closed doors. And I found it fascinating that a good portion of this movie is Richard Jewell and his mother just being in their house. They can't go anywhere. They can't do anything. And that's when we kind of get to see who the real Richard Jewell is. And the film is essentially saying that he is a virtuous human being. For the most part, he's imperfect, but he's virtuous. And he's that way when no one's around. And he's also that way uh, in front of other people. So, so I, I think that that works for the most part here in Clint Eastwood's picture. Listeners, that is our review of Richard Jewell. If you had a chance to see the film, make sure to let us know your thoughts. You can do so at seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com or on Twitter at cbelievepod, cbelievepod. Kevin, we've reached the part of the episode where we take an opportunity to recommend something from the world of television and or film to our listeners, what would you like to recommend today? Well, I kind of scooped myself earlier in the episode when I talked about Jingle All the Way, because that was actually uh, my recommendation uh, for for this week. So that ended up in the middle segment. But that means that I just get to audible to a movie that just now, talking about Billy Ray, I was thinking about how much I liked and it also is a really good tie into the Star Wars universe. That would be Billy Ray's 2003 film Shattered Glass, with which he both wrote and directed. It stars Hayden Christensen, he of Anakin Skywalker prequel fame. Um, and it's about the scandal of Stephen Glass's making up stories while he was a reporter at the New Republic. And I think I might have recommended this on the show before, so apologies if that's the case. But I think the more I see this movie, the more I appreciate what it's doing, the more I appreciate Ray's approach to the methodical side of journalism, about how it's just about digging and digging and digging and finding the truth 
at the bottom. I think all of the performances are very good. Peter Sarsgaard plays sort of Hayden Christensen's nemesis in this film. He is excellent and I don't know, might be one of my favorite performances of that decade. He's really good. And Hayden Christensen got a lot of flack for his performances in the Star Wars prequels, but he is very good in Shattered Glass. And you might even say it's the role he was born to play. So that's a that's something to recommend it right there. So if you're in the mood for a good journalism flick, Shattered Glass is a great bet. Yeah, I need to check it out. I I've heard you talk about it before. I've seen you talk about it on Letterboxd. I was thinking through what I would recommend this week, and because this is our last episode of 2019, we're taking Christmas off next week, I figured I would recommend a Christmas film that I really do like that I I don't really hear many people talk about, and that's the 1945 Peter Godfrey film, Christmas in Connecticut, the story is it's really fun. There's a, a food writer, and she writes as if she is a perfect housewife who is married, has this country home, and she can cook well. Well, when her boss and a war hero decide to come over for Christmas, she has to recreate this life that she doesn't have. And Kevin, I think if you haven't seen this film, I think you'd be interested in this film because the lead is played by Barbara Stanwyck, one of your favorites. All right. So, uh, yeah. Really good Christmas picture. I I like it a lot. If you're if you're looking for a Christmas film that is not talked about a lot, but it's just classic. Uh, go with Christmas in Connecticut. Well, I I am ashamed to say that as a Stanwyck stan, I have not seen Christmas in Connecticut. I need to remedy that immediately because you can never have too much Barbara Stanwyck <laughs> in your life. Yeah, so <laughs> I my parents watched this over and over and over whenever I was a kid, and then I watched it for the first time in a while last year, and I was like, yeah, this really is good. It's not just uh, it's a lot of fun. It's not just my my nostalgia, my memories uh, of it. So yeah. Listeners, that's our episode for the week. We'll be off next week. We plan to have a show after that and then the week after that. So in, I guess, three weeks, we're going to do our top 10 of 2019, which is my favorite episode of the year. It's a whole lot of fun, a year in the making, and I'm getting my list together. Kevin, how how close are you to getting your list locked in? <laughs> It Okay, so the last couple of months have been absolute chaos for me in a good way. So I've talked before about how 2019, the first half of it was a little bit disappointing for me. There are a lot of movies I was looking forward to that just I didn't like them as much as I had hoped. And then just in the last two months, I've just been seeing great movie after great movie. And it's thrown my my top 10 list into, into total disarray. I'm not sure which of them I like more, how I'm going to order them, which ones are going to have to eventually get left off. It's it's madness, and I'm I'm enjoying the process utterly. <laughs> That's fun. I'm I'm really excited to hear your list. I I have a pretty solid top three that uh you know i've got i got some more films to watch and they could be overtaken but i i feel really good about my top three and uh i've been watching more films that i i needed to catch up on i had a chance to see parasite and i'll just kind of save my thoughts for later but i did have a chance to see that i'm i was i was glad to get to it but um a number of movies 
I still need to check out, but it's my, my top 10 is getting there. I, f- I feel like there's this this kind of flow every year and I, it's it's close, Kevin. It's close. We'll see if like the top like I think there's like five to seven films I really just need to get to if any of those will overtake some of the movies I have now. Okay, well, I'm I'm looking forward to, to hearing more about that. We'll probably, you know, over the next couple of weeks, we might be messaging back and forth as we prep for uh, our top 10 episode, but mm-hmm. it's an exciting time of year. Yeah. Can't wait. Yeah, me either. Listeners, thank you for checking out this week's episode. It's brought to you by our Patreon supporters and ChristandPopCulture.com. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. My co-host is Kevin McLenathan. And until 2020, this is Seeing and Believing. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz. Used under Creative Commons License 3.0.